The rest of you, I uh, just invite you to pull out your notes. Uh, if you're a note taker, to jot a few things down and keep you tracking with what's going on here. I want you to think for a moment about just some of the astonishing invitations that Jesus gives in the Bible. Um, one of them that's in view today is this. Come and be perfect. Come after me and be perfect. Now, if you don't read that in kind of a religious garbly goop way, that's astonishing. That's a remarkable thing to have spoken. Think about your last week for a moment, okay? This is real world. Think about what you have done absolutely perfectly for a week. Have you brushed your teeth perfectly for a week? Have you combed your hair and had it come out the way you wanted to perfectly for a week? Driven your car? Spoken, right? Now, these are things you do every single day, I hope, right? And yet, with daily practice... Some of you, for a lot of years, it still hasn't made perfect. Now, let's not even mention um, if we're loving perfectly this week, if we're submitting perfectly this week, if we're serving perfectly this week, if we're thinking absolutely perfect this week. Do you see how astonishing this is? I mean, I can't brush my teeth perfectly for a week. I'm sure my dentist could find something wrong with that. So come and be perfect is what's in view today. So what is Jesus after? Is this some cruel uh, demand, commanding people to do something they can't possibly do? It's important to read the scripture with your head on straight, where you're reading and really thinking about, what does that mean? What is he after? Is Jesus good or not? It wouldn't be good to be demanding things uh, of people they can't possibly do. That would be something called cruel, right? Turn in your Bible to uh, Matthew chapter 6. We are taking the Sermon on the Mount. We're in a series called Sermons and Stories of Jesus. And we're taking the Sermon on the Mount in four parts. Remember, this wasn't a four-part series for Jesus. This was just a sermon given on a mountainside. So we want to constantly go back and look at what has Jesus been talking about. So we're not going to take this week's sermon, chapter 6, and just isolate it from the rest of what he said. If you've missed, you can listen online. If you were with us, let me just remind you really quick. He kicks it off with the Beatitudes, which is just a whole lot of happy. Blessed are the, blessed are the, blessed are the. Nine times. He starts off the sermon appealing to people's universal passion for their own happiness. Unashamedly. He moves on to tell us our identity. He says, you are salt. You are light. And then last week, Ben took us through the rest of chapter 5 which is after telling us who we are, here's what to do. And look at the end of, your, of chapter 5 in your Bible. The demand to be perfect. Easter season is rapidly approaching uh, us. And I already saw it yesterday. I happened to be at a store and briefly saw a headline. And uh, you, you are going to start reading and seeing on the Discovery Channel some really goofy things about Jesus. There's all kinds of stuff written, all kinds of experts that come out of the woodwork at this time of the year. And as a person who studied the Bible, knows the Bible, loves the Bible, and believes the Bible to be the, the Word of God, it's a frustrating time of year for me, to be honest. I read all kinds of stuff online and just see, what are the ideas that are going to be out there? There's some predictable ones. Here's one you're going to hear a lot of. You are going to hear Jesus, the one we just sang about, the King Eternal, the pre-existing son, you're going to see him reduced to this. A good moral teacher. 
an example to follow. Christians will tell you all these things about him. You don't need to believe all the hype about that. But he was a good moral example. He was a, he was a good example to, to follow. Now, here is what is nonsense about that. If Jesus is just a good example, think about this for a moment. If Jesus is just a good example, he's absolutely crushing to us. Because as he lives a perfect life, as he leads out by example, what he does is day after day after day, as I compare myself to the model, to the example, what do I see? I see I cannot attain that. Every single day that goes by, I'm getting further and further behind. Jesus, as mere good example, is crushing. That's not good news. It's not good news if you leave Jesus as just a good moral example. All that does is really highlight how far behind you and I really are. So Jesus isn't just a good example. Jesus is a great Savior. And that's the news. That's the good news that we sing about. That's why we gather here today. That's why we need a reset on Sunday mornings to remind ourselves of this. Jesus didn't simply come to show us the way, but to be the way. He's the means of getting there. Let me illustrate it this way. This summer, um, I went with my 15-year-old, uh, and we climbed to the top of Half Dome. And we had a little crew with us. We all uh, were up there. So here we are, uh, chilling on the top of Half Dome. And, um, and it was just, it was an awesome time. We had, a, we had a really, really fun summer. Now I ask you, as a dad, what if I asked my then two-year-old, she wasn't two at the time, but this is Tegan on a different trip, what if I asked my two-year-old to come scale half dome with me and get to the top? What if I did that? Uh, if I did that and I said, you get to the top of half dome, um, she, there's no possible way she could have made it. In fact, she quite possibly would, if she kept at it, she would literally die trying. Some of you who've been up Half Dome remember the last portion of it, which is these cables, right, that go up the side of the mountain. Now, there's no possible way a two-year-old could climb up this, especially after the long hike to get there. But what if I said, Tegan, I want you on the top of Half Dome? And she says, okay, she's trusting her dad. She has no idea how impossible that is for her. She has no idea how dangerous that is for her. But what if I carried her? What if I put her on my back and carried her? Could she get to the top of a half dome? Okay, you guys have, it's like a mixed bag. Some are like, I don't know, Dave. I don't know if you can get up there or not. I could, okay? Trust me. <laughs> Jesus, Jesus models the way. He shows us the way to hike. We follow him. Jesus lets us do hiking. In fact, he calls us to walk, right? But Jesus is our means of getting to the top of Half Dome. He carries us. Now, when we are carried, there's a giant smile on our face because we hiked, we're in the hot weather, we're going through the ups and downs, we're getting blisters on our feet, but we have no idea at the great personal cost it's taken on our Savior to get us to where we are. You see how my face isn't smiling? It was like 105 that day at Hetch Hetchy Reservoir. At great personal cost, Jesus carries us. So when Jesus says, come and be perfect, he has us walk, he has us hike, he does show us the way. He is a good example, but he's not just that. He's the means of getting there. 
He carries us. What he's after is maturity, growing up, sanctification. Come and be perfect. Don't settle for walking around in circles. I want you to get to half to. I want you to get to the reward. If chapter 5 answered who we are and what we are to do, chapter 6 goes on and really dives into how. Here's how you get there. Here's how you practice righteousness. Here's how you live in the kingdom way. Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. Follow along with me. It says this. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Motive is really important to God. Because just like your physical body, the insides really matter. You can do without some of the externals, but the insides really, really count. They're super important. Notice it doesn't say, don't ever live righteously in front of other people. God calls us to a 24-7 worship lifestyle. That means we are to be in His full presence, worshiping Him at all times. Does that mean you're going to do righteous deeds in front of other people? Absolutely. What does it say? It says, don't do them in front of them in order to be seen by them. Don't do it so that your motive is to do it in front of other people. Think about why Jesus even needs to say this. Why does he need to bring this up? Here's why. Every single person in this room has a deep and ongoing need for validation. That's it. We have a longing to be validated. For some people, not having validation is a daily crushing weight. Some people, the way they deal with not being validated or feeling validated or being validated from the wrong people is they make a part-time job out of soothing it or masking their deep need for, for validation. And there's this cycle that goes on with that. I'm going to mask this with extra working out time at the gym, extra work on the job, achievement moving up the corporate ladder, some kind of drug, alcohol, adrenaline fix. And on the tail end of that, there's severe shame and depression saying, wow, that didn't cut it. So it's a part-time job to keep this thing going, to keep masking that lack of validation that goes on. And this is the merry-go-round that many of us in this room have found ourselves in. If you're feeling that right now, you are in fantastic company. Welcome. Guess what? There's hope. There's hope on how to get out. For others, it's sought from people. Some have given up trying to find it all together and just mask the need for it. Some are just desperately looking for it from other people. Jesus speaks into this, telling us where to find it. I want to give you one big principle this morning that I see from this scripture. Here it is. Live well for God's approval alone. If you don't write anything else this morning, write that down. If you're a terrible note taker, write, I think, the word live. And maybe God. I don't know what I left blank. But live well for God's approval alone. If I could summarize chapter 6, that's what it would be. That's what it would be. Here's what's interesting. Jesus lived his life to please the Father, and he didn't care too much else about pleasing anyone else. In fact, he gave no concern of pleasing other people. You know what's fascinating? In the process of living life that way, he pleased a lot of people. Aren't there a ton of people worldwide today, Christian and non-Christian, believer and non-believer, who are studying at, looking at, and holding up Jesus' life as an example? Absolutely. 
This is a guy who did not live to please other people. We see that over and over again in the scriptures. Ultimately, it cost him his physical life. He lived to please the Father alone. And yet in this wild turnaround that any observer can see, don't be a believer to see it, he pleased a lot of people in the process. Here's what Jesus is going to do. He's going to introduce us to three people. And all three are pretenders. They're make-believe. They're into make-believe. So we're going to walk through them one by one. Here's the first. The first one we're going to see is the giver. He's the giver, but not really. Okay, follow along in verse 2. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be done in secret, and your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. The giver is not really the giver. The giver is the taker. Right? The, the, the taker wants to hire a band and get some publicity going because there's a need to be met. And why on earth would I meet this need if there wasn't some publicity? If there wasn't some notoriety around the circumstance? The giver is really the taker. It's not a gift that this person is making, it's a payment. It's saying, I'm going to invest X amount of my time, my money, my resources, so that I can build my brand, so that I can invest in my name, so that I can appear to look whatever good. So instead of, um, instead of helping the poor, the taker is really using the poor. There's a certain um, cycle that goes on whenever a world disaster or political crisis happens. It goes something like this. Disaster, then the world's cameras descend on said disaster. Then there is a flood of generosity and care and talking about and people going to and organizations giving to said disaster. Then over time, there's fatigue and the cameras leave. And very soon after that, what happens? The care tends to dry up. You watch for it. That is the cycle that goes on and on. And there's one more component. Those, actually there's two more components. Those who are there and care nothing for trumpets and hiring bands remain and keep on serving because their goal all along was to help hurting people, to give. Those are the real givers. And here's the last step. The last step is those being helped know it's abundantly clear who the givers and who the takers are. Abundantly clear. Time just weeds out all the takers. You watch for this. The next disaster. This is how it goes down. I was just in World Vision's headquarters a few days ago, up in Seattle. In World Vision headquarters, there's a whole kind of experience in their lobby. It takes about an hour to kind of walk through. I know a lot about World Vision. I've been with World Vision for a long time. It was so powerful to see since the 50s World Vision go in, and it shows these different timelines. Rwanda goes down. And a month after, 100,000 or 800,000 people die in 100 days at the hands of each other. World Vision's there. Here it is, the 21-year anniversary in April. World Vision is still there doing their peacemaker program. Romania, in 1989, has their, has their president killed. 
and they go in and they find the atrocities of all the orphanages that are going on. There's a world outcry. Then the world cameras leave, the takers leave. Guess who's still there? World Vision. Romania has since said, in fact, place after place after place, gave high commendation to World Vision, saying this very thing. These are non-Christian. Romania isn't Christian or not. It's just a nation. These are non-Christian entities saying this. When every other care organization left, World Vision has remained. You're going to tackle this in community group this week. But we're going to look all about doing things not before men, and yet we just read about being salt and light. Do your works in such a way that you'll shine bright, that you'll be flavorful like salt. Do it before men so that they will give praise to your Father who's in heaven. Do you see the tension of that? Same sermon. Jesus says, do your works before men so people will praise you. The whole chapter 6 is don't be like the hypocrites and do your works before men. So there's a tension there. You've got to work through that. But I think this is what it's talking about with, with world vision. They don't go around trumpeting it saying, hey, look at us. They just do the work. And guess what? 21 years later, they go, wow, look at them. That's a Christian witness. Trumpet help is really no help at all. And Jesus essentially says this, enjoy the notoriety. It's going to tend to sour in your stomach after a short period of time, but that's all the reward you're getting. That's what the takers get. Now, notice that kingdom people are generous people. The assumption is, the command is, give. I mean, Jesus says it this way, when you give, there's a, there's a predisposed position and stance of saying, of course kingdom people are going to give. They're, they're mimicking their generous God. But when you give, and then he gives some instructions. Give forgetfully. Forget about yourself and others. Keep it between you and the Lord. Givers are generous with their time, money, and stuff, but they're also forgetful. Jot down Matthew 25. In Matthew 25, you have Jesus uh, sharing some things, and he's talking to some people who are getting their reward, and they say this to him, Lord, when? When did we feed you? When did we clothe you? When did we visit you in prison? We don't remember welcoming you in as a stranger. When was all that? These were givers who just forgot. You know what takers would have done had they been presented with that same information? They would have pulled out their balance sheet, their stats, right? And they're like, oh, yeah, that was a good month. Man, we did a ton of work that time. Why? Because they're keeping track of every single time they gave. Why? Because it's about them. They're takers. My dad um, passed away a few years ago, and some of you remember that. And one of the blessings of how dad ended up dying was that he, <clears throat> he had his cognitive ability right to the end. And in the last several weeks, probably the last couple months, actually, of his life, letters began to flood in from all over the U.S. And people would write to my dad telling him the impact that he had on their life. And... and Vivid memory I'll have till the day I, till the day I die is sitting in our kitchen table at the house and my dad's sitting there and he's reading another letter and he's just got tears coming down his eyes. And here's what he said. He goes, he goes, I don't get it. What did I do? All I did was, and, and I, and I remember just telling him, I said, dad, I said, the things that you've done, the life that you've lived, you, you've, you've been a giver, and it's made a massive difference. My dad was forgetful in his giving. He was utterly shocked at the outpouring of love that people gave to him when they found out he was sick. He was shocked because he gave, 
and he forgot. I think that's a little bit of a picture of what not know, letting your left hand know what your right hand is doing. While your left hand's doing it, your other one's waving a hand saying, hey, check it out. While your right hand's serving, your left hand's jotting down the stats of who you helped today. Man, just go do it and be forgetful. That's what Jesus is saying. With each of these, I want to give you a little uh, EKG, a little question or a statement to kind of figure out where you're at. Here's, here's the one for uh, being a giver or a taker. Are you as eager to help in secret as you are when people are around? Does the potential for notoriety raise your game at all? Does the fact that other people might notice this kind of pique your interest a little bit more? Like, I, gosh, I blew right by that need, but I think I might actually get some notoriety for this. This is really deep internal stuff. This is stuff you're going to have to pray and say, God, would you reveal my heart? Because it's full of wickedness and it'll want to mask right over this. Not me. But I want to just put these questions out and in a quiet moment today or this week sometime before it gets too far beyond today. Man, just put these before you and the Lord. God, is this me? Am I a taker? Another pretender that Jesus introduces us to is the prayer warrior. It's the prayer warrior, but not really. Here it is, Matthew chapter 6, verse 5. It says, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand in the prayer, stand and pray in the synagogue and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret, and your father who is in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespass, their, their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So, it's the prayer warrior, but not really. It's actually what? The prayer performer. Right? Notice the pattern here of uh, don't, do, don't, don't, do. He kind of just gives the, the, the do's and don'ts of prayer right here. One of the warnings that I gave a couple of weeks ago at the start of this sermon is not to let the Sermon on the Mount become a new Ten Commandments that we then hold up as some sort of a standard that Jesus wasn't talking about. What's interesting is prayer performers do this all the time with the Lord's Prayer. They make this a new Ten Commandment, and they actually go exactly against the teaching of what Jesus is trying to drive home. Let me show you the do's and don'ts really quick. Number one is this. Don't be like the pretenders, he says. Don't pray for the art of it. Don't pray for the applause. He says, do pray in private. This is a conversation between you and God. Keep it that way. Does that mean you can never pray in, in group? No, that's modeled in the church. We are going to close this service in prayer. In your community group, I hope you pray often. But pray in private, Jesus says. Don't pile up words and God talk phrases. Isn't it odd when people start to pray and all of a sudden they're talking in King James language? I mean, that's odd, isn't it? You go, you almost peek. You're like, what? What's happening over there? 
I didn't know he was British, you know, and all of a sudden they're, they're speaking in this different language. That's someone who's just, now they've just been taught that way. They've just been modeled that. That's not necessary. We don't need to, to do that. Here's another one. Don't think that the power is in many words or in specific words. It's not up to you. That's really good news. Any more than your kids in the way that they talk to you, sometimes the many words, now this is, this is a, illustration that breaks down, but sometimes many words to me as a parent begins to work against them. Give me the simple statement of what you're asking. I can't even sort through everything you're you're talking about right now. Um, I've been with people who can't land the the prayer plane, so they kind of take it around for another lap. They they don't know how to close this thing off. And um, and I've been praying, and I just, you know, I want to have a Holy Ghost moment. Amen! Like, just shout it and, and let, you know, that's like us all, you know, evacuating the plane. That's not who I'm talking about. I get that, I get that there's a tension, there's a heart rate that goes up when we're praying and we're mindful that we're saying this out loud. Are we doing this right? I mean, a lot of it can come from really pure motives. I'm not talking about that person. I'm talking about the person that takes another lap in prayer and another lap because in their mind, a few more laps is really gonna, you know, solidify the deal. God's gonna have to hear him. God's gonna have to come through if I say it one more time. Jesus' modeling of a prayer is really simple, it's really direct, it's really God-focused, isn't it? I mean, that's what the Lord's Prayer is. Not a ton of flowery language, it just gets right to the point of things, to the heart of things. Many have missed the point and made the Lord's Prayer a repetitious prayer. They've totally missed the point. They haven't read the verses before and after. And so they've turned the Lord's Prayer into say this, it becomes mindless phrases that then checks off prayer for the day or before a meal or something. And what we're doing is we are in that moment, we are prayer performing. We're no longer doing the very thing Jesus is calling us to do. Now notice that he wasn't against long prayer, he wasn't against repetition in prayer, and he wasn't against persistent prayer. In fact, Jesus taught and modeled all of these in the scriptures. What he is against is prayer performance and the lie that prayer is somehow effective based on these silly externals that we sometimes put on. So don't do it. Here's your EKG for this one. If you pray more, if you pray more or better in public than you do in private, then you are more interested in human praise than in God. If you pray more or better in public than you do in private, it's simple. You're more interested in human praise and in humans' opinions about you, than God's. Now, do you see the giant warning for those of us in public ministry? I'll tell you who this hits the absolute hardest. It's me, it's Ben, it's Gria, it's Rob, it's people who stand on a stage in church and pray. Because there's the ongoing temptation to sound really godly in front of all of you. There's an ongoing temptation to really think about how all these things come out. There's actually more hypocrisy when a church leader is up doing this because the effect of it is greater. Let me tell you this. There's also greater temptation for anyone in public ministry in this area. So with every sermon, any preacher ought to preach this to themselves first, every time. Especially the case in this particular one. All right. Behind door number three, we have the third bachelor. Let's meet him. The third bachelor is the super spiritual. Surely you've met this person before. Matthew chapter 6, verse 16. Here it goes. 
And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may be done, uh, it may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who is in secret will reward you. The super spiritual is not really the super spiritual. He's actually the super self-conscious. To be super self-conscious is to move well beyond being self-aware, which I think is a good thing, to becoming self-focused or self-obsessed. Image is everything. And maintaining that becomes number one priority. Part of the fun of growing up is realizing this truth. No one cares. No one's watching. I went through a lot of my early teens and teens thinking everyone was watching and everyone cared. I was performing and putting a ton of energy out, and then I kind of began to realize people aren't even watching. And if they are, they're actually looking past me at someone else. Or if they do see me, they don't even care. And there's a certain freeing element to that, isn't it? It really is. But here's the reality. We never grow out of this completely. Don't think for a minute that you can laugh, ha, 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 back in my older, my younger days, you know, this is how it was. We still buy into this. We still are ever aware of people and what they said and, 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 and what they think of us and all of that. That's something that's, that's built into us. Do you see this validation? Even if we don't, even if we don't on a daily basis really feel we need validation from other people, we still have this little thing going on inside of us. In this passage, Jesus says, give, pray, fast. When you give, when you, he assumes these things are happening. Every disciple knows this. These don't come naturally. These are, these are conscious decisions to do. And Jesus assumes we're going to do them. But do it for the right reasons. Do it for the right person. Don't, and you may get a little passing notoriety. Why was Jesus so hard on the hypocrites? I think maybe, maybe it was to wake them up to the danger. You know how anger and like offending people can really heighten their, like they engage very quickly at that? Maybe Jesus was so keenly aware of the utter danger that they were in as hypocrites that he sat there and called them names and really called them out and made it plain. Hypocrite's a term from theater, right? We know this. The hypocrite is the one that can put on masks and, and change faces. Life is a performance for hypocrites. It's theater. It's not real. How many actors are warm and genuine and moving on the screen, but they find unscripted, one-take, real life very, very challenging? I mean, we see example after example after example of that. You're so warm and understanding and insightful on screen. Why? Because that's easy. It's easy to be handed a script and act. It's a lot harder to live with your spouse day in and day out. It's a lot harder to live with your friends and neighbors and people who really know you. So on the one hand, hypocrisy is really, really easy. It's easy to put on a mask and pretend to be wholehearted toward God while people are kind of peeking at you. That's easy. But hypocrisy is also really hard. It's hard to identify in ourselves. Every pastor leads a flock of hypocritical people. But here's the catch. No one in their flock ever thinks they're hypocritical. It's hard to identify in ourselves. Not only is it hard to identify, it's really hard to root out and deal with. 
Maybe this is why Jesus comes up and just goes two by four, boom, to the head. (laughs) Woe to you, you hypocrites, you blind guys. I mean, he just calls it out. Doesn't mince words, doesn't tell a little story. He offends deeply. Why? Because hypocrisy is, is so far deep in. All right, here's the EKG question. How do you deal with praise and criticism? How do you deal with praise and criticism? Do you say all the right spiritual things in humility? You deflect the praise as someone comes and says, Hey, sister, I really see Christ in you. And you just start doing the finger point. Man, it's all him. You know, you, you do all the right external things. But then in the hours and days and weeks ahead, you just drink that compliment in. You mull on it and you think on it and you remember how it felt when that person said it. Or conversely, when a critic comes, you say, oh, thanks for the input, brother. Man, I really appreciate your genuine concern. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bless you, brother. (laughs) Bye-bye. And what do you do for the next hours, days, and weeks? Man, you are... You are the world's best defense lawyer. You build such a tight case to where you get to, you can't handle the truth. I mean, you've got an open and shut case as to why they're wrong. You've thought of every legal defense to defend your name. You know what that is? That's hypocrisy. You want to appear godly. You want to appear like you're doing the right thing, but internally. We all struggle with this. Someone asked me yesterday, I said, do you ever get hate mail? I said, listen, anyone who's in a leadership position, anyone who speaks at all for a living, gets hate mail. Yes, I do. I get a ton of praise, and I get a ton of people, not a ton, I get people who, who, who pound on me and who, and who say things. How do you handle praise and criticism? That is a great little heart test to see where you are at in your responses. All right, after holding up three negative examples, we begin to see kind of this this remedy emerge, and and here it is. The remedy is to understand that God is Father. Understand that God is Father. In 18 verses, Jesus uses the word Father for God ten times. Do you see he's trying to drive this home? Pharisees had a fundamental problem. They didn't relate to God as Father. They related to God as slave driver as some sort of a mean boss. Good fathers do something for their children. They provide security. And security is given, it's not earned. Just as your children don't earn a place as sons or daughters in your home, so you don't work your way into God's family. You're a son, you're a daughter, you're not an employee. That's a huge differentiation. If you are insecure in your relationship to God today, you will seek it out. You'll either seek it out from Him by trying harder and harder and harder to either earn His good favor or remain in His good favor, or you'll seek it from other people. You'll begin to use your friends and family and co-workers and people around you and your pastors and your small group leaders, and you'll begin to use them to, to, to validate you because you're insecure in your relationship with God. Wouldn't it be really strange if my kids did a whole bunch of Carlson-y things, but only when other people were watching? And what if they did these kind of Carlson-y things and I caught them kind of looking at the crowd and making sure that they saw as a dad standing nearby? That would be really, really strange, wouldn't it? 
That must be how it appears when we do Christian-y kinds of things only at church. Only when we're on. Only when we're with that crowd of people. But when we're with this crowd of people, we're someone totally different. Who's in view of it all? It's the sovereign Father. Father sees it all. Um, people sometimes hear the word theology and immediately take a nap. They just think, oh, that sounds really boring. Do you see how important theology is? Theology is simply your understanding of God, of spiritual matters. And if you understand God as Father, it makes all the difference in the world as to how you're going to live, what you're going to live for. The Pharisees um, misunderstood God completely And so watch this. All of a sudden, they start to misunderstand prayer. Why are they praying with tons and tons of words? Why are they repeating it a ton? Why are they praying in front of other people? Because they don't see God as Father, who actually can help. They see it as a means to an end. They see it as maybe he's a slave driver. We need to really work this thing up. Contrast that with how did Jesus start the Lord's Prayer? What does he say? Our Father. I mean, that one word, that changes everything. If you really understand God as Father, it fundamentally changes how you give, how you fast and pursue other spiritual disciplines, and how you pray. All right, after talking about spiritual devotion, Jesus takes us kind of to some worldly matters, the the stuff of life, if you will. Look at verse 19. He's going to look at treasure and investment. He says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters. For either he will love the one and, and he, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Here's the really simple, plain teaching. Do not store up treasures here on earth. Do store up treasures in heaven. Your heart is stored where your treasure is stored. That's what he says. That's what he, that's what he lays out for us. Jesus links our eyes with materialism. Isn't it true that what you stare at is what sets your direction in life? What you're looking at sets where you're going. The question for you is, where is your love and devotion today? Right now. What are you staring at? What are you thinking about? Your brain has tons of power to quasi-listen to what I'm doing and multitask. What are you multitasking about right now? I've sat right where you are. I was there last week. Sometimes you sit there and your mind is already thinking on next week's schedule doesn't mean that that's necessarily you're serving your schedule, but that's a hint that maybe it is. Where's your heart at? Where's your devotion? Jesus says you cannot go in opposite directions. You can't walk in two different directions at one time. It's utterly impossible. Try it after church. That'll be fun. Do it in the parking lot so I can watch. Now, here's, here's the tricky thing with all of this. Remember that hypocrisy thing? Don't just look at your words. You know what I know many of us would do in that situation? Where's your heart right now? What are you devoted to? Your own words would say, I'm sold out to you, God. I'm devoted to you. Don't just look at your words. I truly love Jesus. Look at your actions to interpret what your words mean. Here's an example of that. 
One day a guy comes to Jesus with everything that the world hunts for. Wealth, youth, and status. And he comes with a bunch of religious fervor words. He comes saying, I'm truly devoted to God. I'm passionate to God. I'm solely after Him. I want eternal life. I'm all in. Jesus exposes the meaning of His words with one simple command. Here's what He tells the guy. He says, go. He says, there's just one more thing you got to do. You're doing great. One more thing. Go and sell everything that you have and give it to the poor. And then follow me. The guy goes away sad. Do you see how his actions interpret what he meant by his words? I truly love Jesus could be said by a hundred people. You want to know what the person means by I truly love Jesus? Just look at their actions. The guy went away sad because his true love, his God, his life, his confidence, his hope was what? In his stuff. You know how long it took me to get this stuff? You want me to sell all that and give it away to poor people? Forget it. Wasn't the answer I was expecting. So use your actions. Maybe you'll need another person to say, hey, can you interpret my actions so I can see what my words really mean? Because I think I'm really devoted to God, but I really want to get to the heart of this. Not only is the Father supremely valuable, the Father is utterly reliable. This next part of the scriptures that we're going to read is going to close it out. And it's going to look at worry and trust. And there's a lie that Satan told to Jesus when he was tempting him in the wilderness, and it's still going on with all of us. And here's what it is. Will the Father come through? Will God come through? Is this one that you're praying? Is he really reliable? And Satan whispers that lie over and over and over to the saints. Follow along in verse 25. It says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? And what shall we wear? The Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Pharisees and hypocrites never learn to walk by faith. So if all of life depends on you, you become a frantic mess. Constantly planning, constantly worrying, constantly striving. For what? That leads to some real despair because we're not in control of much. If things are left totally up to us, it's a dreary, painful life. Jesus just points to a couple of examples in nature. Check it out. Just look around you. God's got things. 
God's got it handled. He knows what you need. The Father is reliable. One of the things that little children do is they reach up to their dads every single day. They have no hesitation. Dad, can you help me with this? My standard answer is this. What do you think God gave you a dad for? And my kids go, you always say that. They don't really sound like that, but that's, that's what they say. But that's the reality. Of course I can help. Why else would, would, would God give you a dad but to help you? Do you see why a daily quiet time with God isn't duty or drudgery? It's just a, it's just a daily must. It's a daily gift. And it's not like a daily thing like you can do it all in 25 minutes on the way to work and then you're done for the day. That's just an ongoing conversation throughout today and your Monday and on and on it goes. What a privilege we have. Father, it's your son today. I'm worrying, but I'm trusting. Would you help me with that? Would you help me walk in all the reality it means to be your son today? Would you help me to live my life that way? Would you help me to, to remember I'm, I'm here on assignment, joyfully on assignment for you? I'll do what you ask, joyfully.